The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. So I've got a little bit of a thought experiment for you. So it's probably, it's nothing scary, nothing you haven't done before, nothing you haven't thought about before. Um, But if you could live anywhere, if money was no object, there was nothing holding you back, if you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? We got a lot of Italy. Italy must be the place. I don't know, is it the, is it the like landscape or the food? I'm not sure, but we get a lot of Italy. Anybody else know where they want to live? Spain. Does anyone want to live in America? Am I hearing? I've asked that question for six services and everybody's like, someplace else. Okay, so outside of where you want to live, so just think about this. If you could drive any car, like you could drive anything. Have you thought about this already? What would it be if you could drive anything you, could, you wanted to? Like for me, definitely a Tesla. If I could just pick all the cars in the world. So you know where you want to live. Most of us know what we want to drive. Um, now think about your house. Like if you could have your dream house, what would it look like? You've pictured this in your mind. Just bring it to your mind again. Like, what would it look like to have your dream house? I think everybody has some sort of idea. Some of us maybe get an opportunity to <coughs> live in something close to our dream house. So there was a time where my family watched a lot of HGTV. And the show we watched most on HGTV was this show, House Hunters. And, and so some of you have seen House Hunters. They get this couple and they go and visit three houses. Here's the secret, they've already bought that house. But still, they get to pick from these three houses and the story is always something like, Susie is a kindergarten teacher and her husband Rob, who's a grad student and sells flip-flops on the weekend, Can realtor Heather help them find a three-bedroom for their meager budget of $1.3 million? (laughs) And you're like, what what did I do wrong in my life? Did I miss the flip-flop craze? And there's another another show that my wife really liked a lot. I think the title is My Lotto Dream House. And so these people who won the lottery and they were searching for houses. And it's just like house hunters, they get to pick from these three houses. And like inevitably they would pick the most gaudy Caesar's palace, golden toilet seat house. And at the end it would be like, wow, like winning the lottery does not give you good taste. (laughs) But you've thought about that, right? Like what would you do if you won the lottery? Where would you live? What would you drive? If if money was no object, you could do whatever you wanted to do. But that's not really a temptation, I don't think, for most people, at least not most of us. Um, We might fantasize a little bit about what we would do if we won the lottery. But we know that that's not a real thing because the truth is, like, most of us don't play the lottery. And you would have to play the lottery to win the lottery. 
What we do think about more often probably, almost definitely, is not what life would be like if we won the lottery. We think about what life would be like if we just had a little bit more. Just a little bit more. That maybe if I had a little bit more, most people, and I don't know if it's a Texas thing or America thing, maybe it's just a universal thing, our senses, our belief is that life would be a lot better if we just had a little bit more. It's almost like it's in our blood. We think about more so frequently that if we had a little bit more, then we might even consider ourselves rich. So if you've been around Ecclesia for the last month during the summer, you know that we have been in a series about voices from our culture. And there are some voices in our culture um, that we really need to pay attention to and attune our ears to, and they're telling us some really good things. And there are other voices in our culture that need to be critiqued and maybe even ignored. So last summer, my wife and I uh, watched this movie called All the Money in the World. And All the Money in the World tells the story of the kidnapping of John Paul Getty III, who his family just called Paul. So it takes place in July of 1973. And at the time, John Paul Getty, Paul's grandfather, was the richest man in the world. Not only was he the richest man in the world, he was the richest man who had ever lived. So when Paul was kidnapped, his grandfather was worth right around $1.2 billion, which is about $9 billion in today's money. And the kidnappers ransomed him, ransomed Paul for $17 million. So I'm not the best person in the world with math, but if you've got $1.2 billion and someone's asking <coughs> for $17 million, that's about 1.7% of your total net worth. So to make the numbers a little bit easier to grasp for you, um, let's imagine that you make $50,000. And if someone wanted to ransom a child, your child, your grandchild, for a similar amount, a similar percentage, that would be about $840. So, and you know what I know, that um, $840 is a much bigger deal if you're only earning $50,000 than 17 million is if you've got 1.2 billion. And so when Paul was kidnapped, J. Paul Getty, his grandfather, said no. And what he told the press was that I have 14 grandchildren and one ransom means 13 other kidnappings. But that wasn't his sole motivation. There are some other things driving this decision, and I want you to hear him talk about it in this clip. 
They will do things to Paul that cannot be undone for any amount of money. We have to pay. This simply isn't possible. My financial position has changed. Really? I mean, 30 seconds ago, you said it was a good day. I mean, I'm not all that bright, but I can multiply as well as you. With oil up as much as it was this morning, you have amassed another fortune. Well, what if the embargo is lifted and oil were to crash? I'd be exposed. I have never been more vulnerable financially than I am right now. Mr. Getty, with all due respect, nobody has ever been richer than you are at this moment. I have no money to spare. What would it take? I mean, what would it take for you to feel secure? More. There's a sin that in centuries past, Christians talked about a lot, and we don't talk about very much anymore. And it's the sin of avarice. Avarice is actually one of the seven deadly sins. In the last hundred years or so, it's kind of been whittled down to greed, but avarice is really much, much more than greed. Um, Avarice says that everything that I have is mine and anything that I want should be mine. Avarice is being too attached to money and possessions, caring, caring too much about them. And the important word there is too. Caring too much about them. Because avarice, like all sins, like, like most sins, begins with something that is usually pretty good. Like most of our idols, most of the things that draw us away from God that we feel like give us life, start out as good things. Love of spouse, love of children, our own children. But when we love them too much, that's when it becomes a sin. That there's a healthy balance in the spiritually formed person that knows what's too little and knows what's too much. And avarice is caring about money and possessions too much. Many of you have been around the Bible for a long time. You know the story of the prodigal son, the son comes to the father and he says, "Um, dad, you're not dying soon enough. So everything that you have provided for me and our family, that's not enough. I want my inheritance. I want more. And avarice is fundamentally about wanting more. But here's the sticky part. That when someone begins to talk about money and greed and possessions, we all start looking around for all of the rich people or all of the people that we think are the rich people. And nobody thinks that they're rich. Hardly any of us think that we're rich. Because if if I were rich, I would live. And if, if I were rich, I would drive. And if I were rich, my house would be like, Hardly any of us ever think that we are rich. And that actually hurts us because what happens when we think that we aren't rich is that we actually open up the door for avarice because as long as we think that we're not rich, then it's always appropriate to want more. And avarice says 
that what you should fundamentally do with the energy of your life is get, keep, and protect more. And the question that Christians should ask if we really believe that we are provided for and sustained by God, the fundamental question Christians should ask is how much is enough? How much is enough? And there is no one in the world who can answer that question for you but you. Because we're all at different places. We have different anxieties. We have different pressures. There are different things that we have to do. No one can answer the question for you but you about what's enough. But if the scriptures are to be believed, there is such a thing as enough. And that's not something that I have to tell you. You already know that there's such a thing as enough because you know that there's such a thing as too much. Like you have seen somebody the way they dress and that's too much. My daughters call that extra. (laughs) You've driven by people's houses and you thought that's too much. Like you did that this morning. How many people live in that house? You know what's too much when it's other people. We just never ask what's enough for us. And avarice is deadly because it deceives us into believing that if we can get enough and secure enough, more and more and more, then we will secure our own future. About 12 years ago, um, when I was serving another church here in town, um, we had um, one of our church leaders diagnosed with a very aggressive form of cancer. And he was in his early 60s at the time and the vice president of an investment bank downtown and he wanted to talk with me about all of his options. And so he invited me to his office downtown. And just this enormous building and I went up the glass elevator and he's explaining to me, he says, Sean, you know, around this building, there's one mile around this building, there's more money than in the state of Mississippi. And he introduced me to all of his team and explained to me that If you wanted to work with him, if you wanted to work with his investment group inside that company, you would need to invest a minimum of $5 million. And so we had lunch and went through all the pleasantries and talked about family and that. And then we finally got around to the brass tacks of what he invited me for. And he wanted to talk about his options for treatment. And at the time, there was this very new experimental treatment that he could take. And if he didn't take it at all, he would be dead in a year. But if he did follow this course of treatment, um, it could cure him or he might be dead in a year. 
But either way, this course of treatment was going to be very painful and very hard for him and his wife and his children and grandchildren. And he told me, he said, Sean, the thing is, I've had a really good life. And if I've only got one more year to live, I'm not sure that I want to spend it in pain. And then he leaned back in his chair and said, well, the good thing for me is I've got a lot of money and money gives you options. And isn't that what we all want? Like when you strip it all away, when you get down to the meat of it, isn't what we want options? And in so many ways, that's a good thing to have. But in so many other ways, isn't that just our attempt to secure our own future? And Jesus has a teaching about this very thing, about our desire to secure our own future. And so in Luke 12, he begins a teaching. He begins it this way before he tells a story. He says, you'd better be on guard against any type of greed. So apparently there are lots of different types of greed. And be on guard against them all. For a person's life is not about having a lot of possessions. Jesus says a person's life is not about having a lot of possessions. And we are not convinced that Jesus is telling us the truth. And we're not not convinced because we're bad people or because we're greedy people or we don't care about other people. We're not convinced because we don't know what a lot is. Like we don't know what a lot is. We know who we think has a lot, which is everybody else. And the reason we don't know what a lot is, is because we've never answered the question, what's enough? And if I don't know, if you don't know what enough is, there's no way that you can know what a lot is. So last summer I had to do something um, that it just pained me to do. I had to buy a new car. And in my house, buying a new car means buying someone else's old car. And we just always had this agreement, like when it comes to cars, that we will drive them until the wheels fall off. Like we will drive a car <coughs> until it absolutely can't be driven any longer, until it has fallen. That's why I usually have like a three or four year depression because I'm having to ride around in this terrible car, but I'm just committed to it. And so in a, in, in a world where I could have anything that I want, what I would really have liked to have done last summer is to buy my Tesla. But I didn't. What I bought instead was a Toyota Prius. 
It was about three weeks ago. I'm headed home driving down the freeway. And I'm riding in my Toyota Prius. And I just get hit with this wave. And I think, man, I really like this car. I really like this 42 miles a gallon that I'm getting in this car. And then in the next instance, I thought, I shouldn't. I shouldn't like this car. Cloth seats, there's like hard plastic everywhere. The Bluetooth is a pain to connect. It's like a bumpy ride most of the time. And then I thought, I know why I like this car. It's enough. And that's a big deal for me. Because I remember being in third grade and watching my mom break open my dad's penny bank to get out money so my older brother could go on a school field trip. And I think he needed $5 and we didn't have it. And I remember being in ninth or 10th grade, the age of my oldest daughter, and seeing the wrecker come to the house to load up the car that we had just bought four months ago to take it because it had been repossessed. And that kind of shapes your world in a particular way. And I'm not the only one, I'm not the only one in this room with those stories to tell. Where deep inside you takes a root. I better make sure that I am always secure. And it twists us. It twists us in ways that there is no way that we would ever be bold enough to ask, is this enough? Because it can never be enough. Then Jesus gets into this teaching. He says, then beginning another parable, Jesus says, a wealthy man owned some land that produced a huge harvest. He often thought to himself, I have a problem here. I don't have anywhere to store all my crops. What should I do? I know I'll tear down my small barns and build even bigger ones. And then I'll have plenty of storage space for my grain and all my other goods. Then I'll be able to say to myself, I have made it. I can relax and take it easy for years. So I'll just sit back, eat, drink, and have a good time. And that's the kind of problem you want to have. Isn't that what we're working for? One day, one day, I'll be able to sit back. One day, I'll have enough. One day, I'll have enough. But haven't you noticed that enough keeps moving? When you were, when you were a kid, how much was enough? 
ice cream money. That's all I ever needed. It's the middle of the summer. That ice cream man is coming in his white truck selling crack out of the back. We're all going to go find the ice cream truck. Give me 50 cents for ice cream. I think that was genuinely the last time in my life that I trusted God for daily bread. Just give me my ice cream. When you were just starting out, when you just had your first job or you just left college or graduate school or medical school or law school, those small apartments, hardly any furniture, leftover pizza, it was enough. Now what's enough? How high do the ceilings need to be? Does this car have seat warmers for those two days? In Houston? Now what's enough? Enough just keeps moving. But we say to ourselves, one day I'll be able to sit back, eat and drink for years. Jesus continues the story, says, then God interrupted the man's conversation with himself. Excuse me, Mr. Brilliant, but your time has come. Tonight you will die. Now who will enjoy everything you've earned and saved? Avarice is our temptation to secure our own future. But most of biblical wisdom, over and over again, both in the First Testament and the New Testament, comes back to one central idea. You're going to die. And what would your life look like now if you lived every day understanding that you're going to die and you don't know when you're going to die, you don't know how you're going to die, the circumstances of when you'll die? How would you live today knowing that you Don't control your future. All of our attempts to secure our own future. And you are not, I am not in control of the future. I want to tell you something that probably not very many people are ever going to tell you. It might be the ultimate faithlessness. The ultimate faithlessness might be to presume that your future is yours to take care of.
So the person who has spoken the most wisdom in my life has been my mother. And she has all of these little sayings. And my dad has a lot of sayings too, but most of them are profane and my moms are really good. And so in moments of anxiety about my own future, she has said this, which I'm sure she didn't make up. And she will say, Sean, I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. And let me tell you something about my life and something about your life. You don't hold your future. And what would life look like if you trusted your future to God? So I just want to leave you with five suggestions about avarice. And I'm going to follow that up with three questions, but five suggestions to consider. These aren't going to be good for everybody. Some of them might not be good for you. Like there are more things that you could do. These are just five that I came up with. There's nothing magical about them, but I think they're helpful. They've been helpful for me. So the first one is just to cut it off at the root. If you find yourself window shopping or online browsing for things, you can stop. But yesterday, I took my youngest daughter. She wanted to go shopping. She said she wanted to go window shopping because she was bored at home. She wanted to get out. And I told her before we left the house, I said, Catherine, I want you to know before we leave, we're not buying anything. And we almost didn't. She got really thirsty. I had to break my vow. I'll live with it. But here's what I find with myself. Here's why I know that I'm about to buy something that I don't need is I find myself, I'm watching lots of YouTube reviews about the product. (laughs) And suddenly I have to have this thing that I didn't even know existed two days ago. Like we have to have this. You can just throw away the flyers that come in the mail. You don't have to go check to see what the price is on Amazon. You don't have to put it in your shopping cart for later. You can just cut it off. Second, you can just get accountable. So I've mentioned to you before, I was in a prayer group in college. There were six of us. We're all still extraordinarily close. We have a 10 years old text thread. We talk to each other every day. And there was a period of time where we just had a covenant together that none of us would ever spend more than $100 without running it by the group. Now, some of you, if you've got like a bunch of people in your house, like you'll go to lunch today and you will spend $100. That's not something that's universal. But here's what you can do. Who in your life have you authorized to speak into your life about your consumerism and spending? To ask you hard questions. But do you really need that? Is, the, is, that, is it really time to replace that car to buy a new house? Is there no other trip that you could take? Who in your life, in your small group, is that a conversation that can be had? Maybe not with everybody, but a couple of people. It's like, help me with this. Third, you can just take a Sabbath from consumerism. Like once you've bought your gas, once you put food on the table, 
you really don't have to go shopping. Like, do you, you can take a break from the new shoes and the new dress. And of course, if there's something that you have to have and you've only got one of them and it needs to be replaced, obviously you have to use discernment. But what would happen if you took three months, six months, 12 months and just decided, I'm not buying anything new because I'm conditioning my heart against avarice that, that I can actually see that I don't need more. Because here's just a reality of life. When there's something in life that you really want, you only have two options. You either have to get it or stop wanting it. And a break from consumerism can condition you to stop wanting it. Fourth is to tithe. That the Christian tradition has this built-in counterbalance to avarice and greed. The acknowledgement that everything that I receive, every blessing that comes to me is from God and should be returned to God. That we first learn generosity by sharing, giving back portions of what we've been given. And it's fundamental to who we are as a people. It's built in already. And then five, worship. And we talk about this a lot during the Advent season because vices like avarice are an act of worship. But we're not worshiping money or possessions. What we're really worshiping is ourselves. That God, with this life that you've given me, I got it from here. I can take care of myself. So three questions you need to ask about avarice. The first is how much time do I spend thinking about money? And clearly that's going to be different for people. It's going to be different seasons of your life. Um, if you've got a lot of responsibilities, maybe you've got a big family and you've just recently lost your job, like you might spend more time thinking about money than you might at other times. The question isn't whether it's good to think about it or not think about it. The question is whether or not I am a thinking, I'm thinking about it the appropriate amount of time. And, and just like as an aside, like there's really no such thing in life as balance. Balance to me, when people ask me about balance, is like putting one foot in a fire and one on a piece of ice and saying, on, on balance, I'm okay. There's appropriateness. And at different times in your life, different behaviors are going to be appropriate given the reality of where you are right now. What's appropriate? Two, if I had more money, whose life would that make better? Would it just make my life better? Dallas Willard says the fundamental goal of spiritual formation is training for reigning. That the New Testament says that those who are found in Christ Jesus will reign with him on high. That God is creating a community of people, a community of individuals with whom God can trust with great responsibility. So if God were to give you more, would you be able to handle their responsibility? Because the scriptures teach that it's those who are faithful with little who will be made faithful 
with much. And third, what excuses am I making about my desire for money, my spending, my consumerism, and my consumption? One of the greatest human superpowers is our ability to lie to ourselves. I think we need that sometimes just to get through the day. But this is not one of those things. What's the reality about my spending, my consumption, my consumerism? Where's my heart? Because the reality of my life, the reality of your life, is that the thing that you are trying to buy can never be bought. And I love the way the writer of Ecclesiastes puts this. He says, better one handful with tranquility. With tranquility, with contentment, with peace, better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone and he had neither child nor brother. No one to give it to. He's not working for anybody else. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes his eyes were not content with his wealth. He didn't know what was enough. For why am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. So if you were to come ask me, hey, hey, Sean, uh, could you tell me, how could I be miserable for the rest of my life? Here's the answer. Keep wanting more. Never know when enough is enough. It's a miserable business. And so the response to all of the ways that we have been blessed and many of us have been blessed beyond our imaginations is never guilt, but gratitude. And the reason we gather is to celebrate this Jesus who denies himself all of the riches so that he could come to us, humble himself, and die on a cross. And for that, we gather to say thank you. And Jesus, show us how to do with our riches what you did with your riches. And that will always, always, always be more than enough. Ecclesia, let me pray for you.
God, we thank you so much for the ways that we are richly blessed. And it's with gratitude that we come to you and appreciate the ways that you've touched our lives and God, for the call that you have given us to touch other people's lives with your blessings. And as we turn to the table, Lord, we would pray that you would show us how to be people who are shaped by the cross, who take the blessings that you give us and then return them to the world, living open-handedly for your glory and your glory alone. And we ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.